God in the unexpected. That's what we're doing. That's what we're talking about. I was uh, reading in the paper this week. We still get a newspaper. And so I was reading in the paper and I read this headline. The headline said, historians make move to strip McDonald's name from prize. Historians make the move to strip McDonald. And they're talking about John A. McDonald, our first prime minister. They're going to want to strip his name from this award, this prize. And there's been different wrestles about taking his name off schools and stuff. And the reason is because they realized that Sir John A. McDonald, our first prime minister, ah, on the money, that John A. was, uh, he wasn't the golden boy of Canadian politics we hoped he would be in that he neglected and mistreated the indigenous people really badly. He was the, uh, he started the residential schools and he committed many grievous wrongs and did things that were horrible and hurtful to people. And so, um, you know, he may have been our first prime minister, but apparently he was also a jerk, I guess. And so they're deciding, you know, we want to take his name off this. And this was the quote from the newspaper. Exactly, word for word. We're finding more and more people who were not perfect according to our contemporary standards, and we're trying to make sure we don't celebrate or even honor any of those figures. That's what they wrote. Now, I don't know whether or not we should strip his name from the award. That's not the discussion right now for us. And I don't know how we make restitution to the indigenous people for what we as a country or government have done to them. I don't know about those things. But what I do know is that if we chose to abide by this standard, no one would be honored ever. Ever. Except one guy. guy. (laughs) You're going to wreck the surprise. No, just kidding. (laughs) Our Advent series is God in the Unexpected. And we talked about um, unexpected places in the Christmas story. We talked about unexpected people in the Christmas story. And today was going to be unexpected situations in the Christmas story. And you know, when I read this, I, I, I changed it. I decided there's nothing more unexpected than God's love. God's love. Because do you know what? Who on earth could claim to deserve the love of God? Since all of us would fail the perfection, especially in retrospect, that standard. You know, everyone has their nice list. There are reasons why we deserve presence or fair treatment or blessings or happiness or justice or good favor, or most of all, love? Why, we, why do we deserve these things? Well, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and you know, I've lived pretty good. I've done these nice things, and we have our nice list reasons why we deserve those things. But the problem is, if we delved a little deeper, we would also find everyone's got their, Santa calls it naughty list, but I hate that word, naughty. It's just, I don't know. I don't like the word. Our not nice list. The Bible calls it sin, Our list of things where we fail, places or times where we lie or we're angry or there's rage or malice or manipulation or selfishness or violence or lust or pride or idolatry. Anytime where there's those things in our life. And the amazing thing about this story is that God who sees everything, the entire story, came to us. 
and he welcomed us and he lifted us up out of the mire and he gives us his spirit to transform us. This is the incredible Christmas story, the unexpected Christmas story. The coming of Jesus means we celebrate a lavish love that welcomes, lifts, and transforms us. This love that welcomes us. I was thinking about welcome, and I thought about when I first was dating Lauren, and I remember when I got invited to the extended family Christmas thing. And that's like, you know, that's a step in a relationship when you get invited to the family Christmas and it's extended family Christmas. And the amazing thing is, as I went to this thing, I realized that um, my family is really different from Lauren's family as I went to their extended family Christmas gathering or event. And the reason is because Lauren's family is culturally Mennonite. So we're a Mennonite Brethren Church. I don't even know if you know that. I'm going to talk about it very much, but we are. And, but I'm not culturally Mennonite. That's a whole different thing. And yet Lawrence family is they are Sudermans and Sawatskis and Weebs. So those, uh, some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, Mennonites know that. And as soon as you say those names, they're like, oh, we're probably related. We can figure it out. <laughs> That's what Mennonites do. It's kind of scary. And these people were like no one I'd ever met. First of all, there were so many of them. So many of them. I needed like flashcards for my flashcards. And we'd like the drill on the way to family things over the years still. We drill, okay, aunts and uncles and cousins and their children and their children. And, their, and there's all these people and, and great aunts. And she's coming and this person and that. It's crazy. Lauren's dad is ninth of ten kids. And Lauren's mom is fifth of eight. And there's some even crossover between the families, like other brothers and sisters who got married. It's like, whoa, this is crazy. So many people. And they make this weird and wonderful food, which you hear the name and you look at it and you're like, oh, okay, I'll try it. I'm, oh, this is good. I like this. Wow. And they speak in low German. Every once in a while, they'll be talking and then they'll just throw in some low German. And I was like, what? What? And then everyone starts laughing. And I was like, What's going on? Do you guys speak German? And they're like, no, 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 but we say this and that. Oh, and they say something. Like, that didn't sound German. It sounded something else. But And then at this Christmas thing, they had a program. At the Christmas party, the family Christmas party, they had a program. Everyone sit down. Now we're going to sing Christmas carols. And then they started singing in four-part harmony. I'm not kidding. I like wanted to start crying. I was like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Is that your aunt and your uncle? You know, and then, you know, and then they started singing in low German. I was like, okay, now I'm not crying. This is weird. <laughs> and this is like, it was crazy. And then they sat and they listened to grandpa and grandma's stories. Everyone crowded around and grandpa and grandma sat in the middle. And we all listened to the stories of how he was starving and they prayed and God provided food just enough. And how they immigrated from Russia to Canada and how God provided. And grandpa would share these stories of their spiritual heritage. And I sat there and I was like, you know, and the, some of the cousins are like, oh, grandpa again, or all this or all that. And I'd be like, this is crazy. Our family reunions aren't like this at all. And I was welcomed as an outsider into a new family, a strange 
and beautiful new family. Matthew tells about stargazing magi who come to find this new king of the Jews. And they come to Bethlehem eventually, through Jerusalem first, and then to Bethlehem. And they come to find this this new king. Has it ever struck you as weird, these people in the Christmas story? Maybe we're just so used to it, it doesn't seem weird to us anymore. Like, oh yeah, I know the magi. Oh yeah, and they got the camels. That's why we got camels in the nativity scene, because we got to have camels, because the wise men. They were there, right? And at the birth of Jesus, what's weird to me is at the birth of Jesus, the Savior, there is no Jewish priests. There's no Levite musicians. There's no incense or anointed garments. There's not even like the local synagogue leader who comes. There's not local royalty, although Herod did want to be there. There are shepherds. That's who's there. Shepherds. And eventually, these wise men, these magi, foreigners. The word for wise men are in different translations. So once some say wise men and some say magi. And the Greek word comes from the magi, that word. That's why it's there. And it conjures up for us some images. Maybe for you, it's like the we three three kings of one. You got this picture of like the traveling caravans and the, the... camel our nativity scene has like two kneeling kings with like big things and they're each a different nationality and you've got a big camel in the nativity and maybe that's our picture of it depending on whatever your picture is a caravan of wise men or magi whatever that image conjures for you this word used here is describing that's the name given by babylonian or chaldean chaldean The Medes, the Persians, and others, they gave this name to wise men, teachers, priests, physicians, astrologers, seers, interpreters of dreams, augurs, soothsayers, and sorcerers. This is the word they would use for these people. And Daniel, when he's in the court of Babylon, and he's the top guy, this would be the word they would use for him. He was like the wise guy, the wise man. He's given advice to the king. He's the one who interprets the dreams. He's a magi. These people come. And although there's debate, like, are they Jews? Are they Jews from far away, exiled? Like, in the end, it doesn't seem like these are Jewish people. These are foreigners. These are outsiders who are coming to worship Jesus. It wasn't locals who brought the gifts. It was foreigners. And this is good news for us if we're not Jewish. Is there anyone Jewish here? I don't know. Maybe? You don't have to put up your hand? Okay. It's good news for us if we're not Jewish. Because we're outsiders then to the story, this initial part of the story. And it's good news for those of you who feel like outsiders when you come to church. Because there's people like that. We come in and it's like, uh, you know, there's this group and, you know, they seem really spiritual or like they're really into this stuff. And you feel like an outsider And so this is good news for you. If that's how you feel when you come into a gathering like this. Luke chapter 5 verse 31 says, Jesus heard about this conflict that was going on. People were upset about who Jesus was spending time with. And this is what Jesus says. Who needs a doctor? The healthy or the sick? I'm here inviting outsiders, not insiders. An invitation to a changed life. Changed inside and out. 
Now, a while back, I went to the doctor. I had to go for like some kind of, I, can't, I could not remember for the life of me what I was going for, but I had to go for some paper thing to get the doctor to fill something. And it was a replacement doctor for my doctor. And it was this woman, she was there and she said, now, do you like, you know, I just have some questions that go along with this. You know, do you get, have you gotten regular blood work done? And I was like, regular blood work done? No, like I haven't been to the doctor forever. She was like, oh, well, you should get blood work done every few years at least. I was like, really? Oh, I don't do that. And she's like, well, you're getting older, clearly. <laughs> and uh, you might, you're going to need to start coming in for an annual physical, you know, and like be keeping up on this. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> I didn't say that to her. But I left and I was like thinking, it's hard enough for me to go to the doctor when I'm sick. I don't know about you, but for me, I like I have a hard time doing that. I'm like, okay, I'm going to make this appointment. I'm going like, to go. Let alone when I, when I don't think I need it. What's going to make me go to the doctor for an annual physical? My wife. No. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> love, yeah. Love for my family. Here's the deal. Those who were most aware of their need are those who see and experience Jesus. It was the, the insiders who lived with this sense of entitlement, like we don't need anything, we're the people, we got it, it's all lined up, we got it made. They missed him. They weren't there. And they missed him all through his ministry. It was the outsiders, the people who felt like outsiders, the people who had a sense of need. They're the ones wanting to see him, and they're the ones who got to see him and encounter him and be changed by him. Paul warns the church about this problem. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. Don't take any of this for granted. It was only yesterday that you outsiders to God's ways had no idea of any of this didn't know the first thing about the way God works, hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel, hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now, because of Christ dying that death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. This is the amazing thing. Jesus invites the outsiders in, in on everything, all of it. We get to have it all. It's awesome. And then what happens? When you've been outside and now you're inside, what are you now once you're inside? You're the insider. And Paul's warning is, be careful when you come in and you experience the greatness and the glory of salvation and God's presence and his change transforming you, that you don't take it for granted. You don't forget who you were. You don't keep the doors wide for everyone to be able to be welcomed in. The challenge is for us to walk in the grace of our salvation. And in the same love that we experienced as we came in, that we would share that love with everyone. That that would be the the way we interact with people. Is this love that we experienced, we share with others. Secondly, this love is a love that lifts there's a guidepost story. I don't know if you've ever heard of guideposts. I grew up with guideposts. My dad was a pastor, and he, had, he would get the subscription, and so I'd go and read them, and there were all these stories in them. They were these kind of 
magazine, little books of all these neat stories. And I found a story, and it's from probably from the 50s or 60s, and it's about a pastor named Henry. And he was working on his Christmas sermon. And Christmas time for pastors is a bit more stressful. There's more, you know, services, more messages, more things they're doing. And so it's, he was stressed out, and he was trying to work on his Christmas talk. And suddenly the, the floor mother comes in, because in their church, they had a a parish home, and upstairs was, they had a home for emotionally disturbed kids. Now, at Christmas time, lots of those kids would go home and be back with their families for a few days, but a few of the kids weren't. They were upstairs, and the storm mother comes in, and she says, we're having a problem. You've got to come, and so in the middle of everything, he leaves, and he goes upstairs, and under the bed is Tommy. He won't come out. He's under there, and he won't, he's not responding, and so this you know, pastor's like, okay, Tommy, you know, Christmas is really fun. We've got presents and we got great things. And he's trying to share with him reasons why he'd come out and no answer, no response. And so this is what he says, still fretting at the time that this was costing. I dropped to my hands and knees and lifted the spread. Two enormous blue eyes met mine. Tommy was eight, but he looked a five-year-old. It would have been no effort at all just to pull him out, but it wasn't pulling that Tommy needed. It was trust and a sense of deciding things on his own initiative. So crouched there on all fours, I launched into the menu of the special Christmas Eve supper to be offered after the service. I told him about the stocking with his name on it provided by the Women's Society. Silence. There was no indication that he had heard or cared about Christmas. And at last because I could think of no other way to make contact, I got down on my stomach and I wriggled in beside him, bed springs snagging my suit jacket. And for what seemed like a long time, I lay there with my cheek pressed against the floor. At first, I talked about the big wreath over the altar and the candles in the windows. I reminded him of the carol he and the other children were going to sing. And then I ran out of things to say and simply waited there beside him. And as I waited... A small, chilled hand crept into mine. You know, Tommy, I said after a bit, it's kind of close quarters under here. Let's you and me go out where we can stand up. And so we did. But slowly and in no hurry. See, Pastor Henry got his sermon. He got his Christmas message demonstrated to him. God came to us where we were, fearful and cold. His love unexpectedly patient and kind. His approach gentle when he could have just pulled us out. (laughs) His coat snagging on the bed springs, his voice inviting, and he came to the least of us so that everyone would be welcome and included. He crawled down under the bed and spoke gently, waiting patiently for us to take his hand. You know, it's amazing to me there are shepherds in this story. Shepherds. And these aren't the respected shepherds of the patriarchs. This is not Abraham and Jacob and King David. These were all the revered shepherds. These are like the low-caste shepherds, the nomad shepherds, like how people talk about gypsies. Like the shepherds are in town, put away the silver shepherds. These are the people 
that the angels come to. They deliver the news in Luke chapter 2. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, you've heard, lots of you have heard this story too many times. And you're like, yeah, shepherds and angels, we get it. So I want you to reimagine it with me. Just, let's just pretend Maple Ridge is Bethlehem. Okay? So Christmas Eve, we're all, uh, we're all in our houses. It's all nice. And let's pretend Justin Trudeau and his wife, who's expecting. I don't know if you knew that. And we just made it up, so it's okay. And she's expecting, and they happen to be in Maple Ridge. They're traveling through, and she goes into labor. And so oh, quickly, they need to be rushed to the nearest hospital, and they end up at Ridge Meadows, where Sue is on duty, and she's going to help them. <laughs> good, good people at there at Ridge Meadows. And so they're there, and they're going to have this baby. The angels appear over the homeless camp. Boom! The light shines down, and they're all like in their tents. They're coming up. People are coming out. What's going on? And the angel starts talking, fear not! Ah! And they're afraid, and then boom, boom! These lights shine, and there's angels in the sky, and then the angels are proclaiming and glorifying God, telling you where to go. Find the baby. Is at Ridge Meadows Hospital, and all of the homeless can't get something. Like, oh my goodness, we just saw angels, and they start running down the street. Well, we gotta go. Hey, they have there, and yeah, we're down here, and they go into Ridge Meadows Hospital. All of them are there because the angels told them, and they crowd into the, the hospital and somehow break through the door. There's a door there with locks, and they, but Sue's there, and she see, you know, sees this as a story, and she lets them in, and they all go down into the hallway, and one by one, they cycle through the room to meet this baby. Yeah, right. You're right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. This is ridiculous. Don't picture this. Are you picturing this? This is not a real thing. This would never be. Never. This is the story. And the angels say to them, for all people, for unto you, and this will be a sign for you so you can find him. He's in the manger. Jesus was born for them. The Savior had come to them to the lowly, to the humble, or as we talked about last week, the humiliated, the weak, the poor, the needy, all of us included. And then the shepherds move from experiencers, they experience this, and then they begin to proclaim it. And they're telling people about it. It's a beautiful transformation in the story. The lowly become the lifted. And instead of just experiencing this good and incredible news, they need to say it and share it. Luke chapter 217 says, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. You guys got to hear this. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds said, told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen as it had been told them. And we're called to move from salvation experiencers. Oh, good, I've been saved. Oh, I've been transformed. I'm experiencing the blessing of God. Great. Oh, this is so wonderful. From that to proclaimers. I was in a, a, a ministerial banquet. 
And so all the different pastors from the different churches in town and some of the different ministries in town, they all get together. Monthly, they get together. And we were getting together for this Christmas banquet. And the pastor of the Anglican church, his name's David Edgerton. He's a really neat guy from England, a young guy, and really awesome. Like, so happy for those guys. He's awesome. And he got up and he was sharing. And he said, when he came over from England... He got to his church, his parish, and they were saying like, oh, have you been to Costco yet? And he was like, Costco? What's Costco? And they're like, you've got to go to Costco. Oh, my goodness. Do you have a Costco membership? Someone was like, oh, you need a membership. You've got to get a Costco membership. You've got to come see Costco. And he was like, okay, wow, what is this thing, this place? And then he said, finally, after all these people kept, kept coming up over and over, and he said, finally, I went to Costco and spent $300. <laughs> On more stuff than I'll ever need. (laughs) In the big sizes. It's Costco. And this is what he said. He said to his church, if we were as excited about talking about Jesus and our church as we are at talking about Costco, this place would be packed out. (laughs) And he said this to us. And it was such a challenge. So I'm like, am I as excited about Jesus as I am about talking about Costco or whatever my thing is? You know what? When we experience the love of God and it really changes us and we, wow, this is amazing. There should be some overflow somewhere where we'd say, I'm so excited about this that I would want to share it with people I know and love. Love that lifts. It's a love that transforms. There's a a kid's story called the Velveteen Rabbit and it's one of my favorites growing up. Um, And uh, it's kind of the first Toy Story. You know, they made Toy Story into this movie. But this was the original Toy Story movie where the toys start talking and they're talking about becoming real and there's all this discussion. And so this rabbit, the Velveteen Rabbit, is talking to the old skin horse who's like the oldest and wisest toy in the nursery. And uh, they're asking him, you know, his wisdom on how do you become real or what is real. And this is what the skin horse says. Real isn't how you are made said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you. Then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up or bit by bit? he asked. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time, and that's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. And I feel like we have this idea about transformation that when we are transformed by the love of God, we will become stronger and more capable and more efficient and more popular. My life is just going to get better and better and better. And that's what's going to happen when I'm transformed. And we get frustrated when that doesn't happen. Our life will get better, but maybe not as we imagined. Maybe it's a little bit more like by the time we're fully transformed that our hair has been loved off 
and our eyes drop out, and we get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter. And these words echo Paul when he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. The opposite of kind of what I'm imagining. It's possible that when we are transformed, that it's actually our perspective that's changed the most than our outward circumstances. Maybe it's our perspective that changes. God came in humility. He came to a humble family, to a humble place, to humble circumstances, greeted by humble people, worshipped by outsiders. And when love transforms us, we become a people of humility who serve and sacrifice and who love. I read that newspaper article that I told you about at the beginning. And do you know what the first thing I thought of was? The Bible would never pass this test. Man, the Bible, the Jews, the early church, they celebrated all sorts of really flawed people. I mean, if you look at the list of people in Hebrews chapter 11, man, that is a messy list. You're like, they made the list? Whoa, they like, they had some issues. And whoa, he, he was drunk. And this, whoa, he was a murderer. And he was an adulterer. Whoa, and he was this, he was that. Wow, this is a crazy list to be celebrating. They're celebrated not because they're worthy of honor by our perfection standards thousands of years later, These people are celebrated because of redemption, because of God's unfailing love that saved them and washed them and made them new and set them free and restored them and transformed them. Because God's love can change anyone and is available to everyone. 1 John 4, 9 to 10 says, This is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. This is the kind of love we're talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. So are we saints or sinners? There's always an annoying pastor who makes you put up your hand. I almost did that today, didn't I? Because I'm an annoying pastor too. And these annoying pastors, they're like, it's not a rhetorical question. They're like, okay, what about this? No, I really want to know. Put up your hands. I've had this many times. And so the question would be like, are we sinners or saints? Are we sinners? Who thinks we're sinners? And people are like, "Um, I'm a sinner. Am I a sinner? I'm a sinner. Uh, I am a sinner. But uh, is it a trick question or not? Jonathan didn't put up his hand. What? Uh, I guess I'll put up mine. And then we say, and then the pastor will say, okay, who's, okay, thank you. Who here is a saint? And then you got the same problem. Like, well, am I a saint? Am I a saint? Uh, no, I'm not a saint. Definitely not. Jonathan's not putting up his hand either. Maybe I'll just keep my hand down. Um, what do I do? Thank you, annoying pastors. <laughs> Correct answer. We are sinners. We are utterly broken on our own. We try and try and try. I try and try and try and then fail spectacularly. We are not perfect. Not now. Not in retrospect. None are deserving of honor or accolade by the standard of perfection. 
And the correct answer is we are saints. We are saints because we are new creations. We are beautiful like a radiant, spotless bride. Treasured children of God. Inheritors. Co-heirs with Jesus. Righteous like Jesus. We are reflecting of his glory and trusting in his unfailing love. See, this is an amazing good news story. Is that God comes to a people who are far away from him, turned away from him. They were his enemies, it says. And then in love, he makes them his own. By drawing near, by coming close. God with us. Entering into our story to rescue us and transform us. It's beautiful. So the coming of Jesus, in conclusion, means that we celebrate a lavish love that welcomes, lifts, and transforms us. And my hope is that this Christmas, no matter how you feel about Christmas, and I know some people, they love Christmas, and some people, they hate Christmas. Some people, it brings up all sorts of stuff. Other people, it's lovely stuff. And my hope for you is regardless of how you feel about the Christmas season or Christmas events or family, all that stuff, that you would open your heart to experience the love of God. That over the next couple days, you'd be willing to say, if it's there, I'd like to experience it. The love of God. It's not meant to be just talked about or studied or theologized or systematized or categorized, but the love of God is meant to be experienced. God's love, evidenced in Jesus, welcomes us, even though we're foreigners, we're outsiders, and it lifts us, even though we're lowly, because we are lowly. It lifts us, and it transforms us, though we are a mess, and makes us into this beautiful thing that we could only be because of him. And he's faithful to finish what he starts. This is love that God came among us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that um, you are love. That you came to demonstrate to us when we were confused about what God was like. We said, well, He seems angry sometimes, and he's got this wrath, and he's got this thing and that thing. We're not sure, and there's these standards, exacting standards of behavior that we can't measure up to, and we don't know. We need to know more about who God is. And then you came, Jesus, and you demonstrated the love of God. You are the image of the invisible God. And so when we look at you and how you came, and how you lived and how you died. Jesus, we are, it moves our hearts. Jesus, I pray that every person who's here, um, that, that they would be able to experience your love in some way, in some measure. That as they open their heart, as they say, whatever, wherever they're standing on their journey with you, that if they could open their heart a little, that you would pour in your love and they would experience you. Thank you. That it is your joy to pour over us your love. You say nothing can separate us from your love. So would you pour it over us today? Would you pour it over us tomorrow? Would you pour over us this week, Lord? Thank you that it's your joy to do it. We love you. Amen.